Want to learn even more about the Ontario wine industry than from listening to this podcast? If you head to iwig.org, you can sign up for Ontario's Brave New Wines. This is a four-week certified course where you'll learn about the ins and outs of Ontario's wine industry from the people that actually make the wines. Parts of the course include learning about wine and food pairings and a visit to three of Niagara's wineries. This course starts on February 25th, so sign up soon at iweg.org. I-W-E-G dot org. You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. I'm Andre Prue from andrewinereview.ca, and you are listening to Two Guys Talking Wine. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and partner in crime. That'd be Michael Pincus, michaelpincuswinereview.com. So it seems like uh, we've really got this, like we're calling it the Legacy Series, up and, and running, and um, we've got another special guest to join us this week. I think this one is spectacular. I didn't think we'd get him so soon, but I'm so glad we did. Without further ado, uh, this is our talk with Len Penichetti, the uh, founder of Cave Spring. We are here in the house that Riesling built. Yes. <laughs> with uh, Len Penichetti. I'm Michael Pincus. With me, Andre Prue. Thank you for giving us the time, Len. Oh, you're welcome. You're most welcome. And you have the first question. Yeah, first question that I've, I've got to ask As is... As I pour bubbles, by the way. <laughs> Yeah. Why, why, why would you get into the wine industry? Um, what year was Cave Spring founded? Well, the winery was founded in 86, but the, the vineyard goes back to the early 70s. Um, so really that's the, I, I, I consider that the starting point. Okay. Um, why? Um, the short answer is I grew up here in Niagara. So I, you know, I was, um, it's home and, and, and I, uh, uh, I love it. I love the the place, and uh, uh, I grew up in an Italian household. I, my my mother was Ukrainian. Uh, my dad was Italian, but the Ukrainians were mostly out west, and the Italians were all here, so they totally dominated. Wait, where out west? In Winnipeg primarily, but okay. also uh, in uh, Saskatchewan. Oh, look at that! Some I'm a I'm a prairie boy. I grew up in, I grew up in Regina. I was yeah, born so in Edmonton, but my, that means nothing. I had one uncle and aunt who lived outside of Regina. What was the name of that? I can't remember the name of that town. I only visited the farm once, but they were they were farmers outside of Regina. Yeah, we probably know know them. I mean, yeah, it really is that small. Was their, was their last name? He was he was not Ukrainian, Uncle Keith, but his his wife was uh, my mom's aunt, I think, or something like that. Okay. So so like the point the point is that I grew up primarily in this Italian household. Um, and so, needless to say, we made wine, right? My grandfather, my paternal grandfather, emigrated from Italy in uh, 1914. And uh, uh, he, you know, was a, essentially a peasant from the Marche, which is the uh, Adriatic side of Italy, central Italy, the land of Verdicchio. Okay. Um, and uh, he uh, made wine uh, every fall. Uh, and uh, so I was recruited as a kid to help, and so and also we were we, in that in that household we always drank wine. I mean, the kids drank wine, so that's very civilized. <laughs> it is. Well, ginger ale was the sort of um, you know way of diluting the wine, so the kids didn't get hammered. But yeah, uh, <laughs> um, so that that was kind of how I got into wine. I mean, it was it was almost. Um, inescapable okay and so and then I I uh, over time what really the, the, the sort of 
pivotal event was my father. Uh, we were in the in the concrete manufacturing business. That was the family business. My my grandfather started in his backyard, and then it became quite a big enterprise when my father and uncle came back from the war, and um, you know they they sort of ramped it up and and you know moved into new technology and uh, you know built a, a pretty thriving business. Well, their plant got the first plant, which was out beside the canal in, in Thorold, was expropriated by the feds in the 60s because they were going to widen the canal, and in true Fed fashion, they abandoned the project, but not before they had <laughs> bought all these places and demolished them. Uh, and so they, were, they looked for another site for the, uh, for the uh, um, plant, in, and, and they, my, my dad ended up buying some land in West St. Catharines, which, funnily enough, we still own, which is in now in, in the urban area of St. Catharines, right near the new hospital. Might oh, yeah. Okay. okay. So when we when we bought that, they were farms. They were abandoned Labrusca vineyards. And uh, my grandfather was retired at the time, and I was kind of his helper. He, I was too young to work in the plant, but not so young that I could hang out at home and not do anything. So he recruited me to, to help him bring these this vineyard back into production. And that's how I got into viticulture, I guess. Sort of. I mean, it's Labrusca viticulture. So, I don't so, so did you keep the Labrusca for very long, or did you immediately go into something more noble? <laughs> <laughs> That's a value-laden uh, um, uh, judgment you've just made, Michael, but I agree with it. Anyway, um, so it, that was the 60s, and... and um, uh, yeah, I mean that was the the era, right? I mean, the, the, this is the astonishing thing that you know, so young people today have no appreciation of just how rapid our industry's um, um, growth or, or, or transition has been from the bad old days of Labrusca and and table wine made from Labrusca to what we have today, what we have right in front of us here. Well, it's something that I tell I tell Michael. Like, I was born in in '83. And it's actually one of the reasons why we've been doing these interviews is I, I can talk to, to people and when I convince people my age to bring wine to my house, I have no problem convincing them to buy Ontario. Mm -hmm. Like I'm fortunate enough that I never had to taste a, a bad bottle of Ontario wine. And I'm almost curious... What, no, you're not. What curious. You don't want to be that curious. <laughs> but, 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 but I, I am curiosity should not be there anymore. Uh, but it, but it should be to know where we where we came from. Once again, the reason it, why we're doing yeah. the interviews, right? No, it is, and, and you know, so there you are, back. You know, rewind to the '60s, and you know there was um, Concord, Niagara, and Fredonia. Those were the three varieties that were in these. There were two different <laughs> farms, and uh, uh, so Fredonia. Fredonia. I I already I already can't imagine making wine with like I love I love when the Concord grapes come in season because they taste great. Yeah. But I just can't imagine. I've never taking heard that of Fredonia. I think that's that's a new one to me. Really? Yeah, no, it was widely planted here in the in white the, right? in, in the old days. Fredonia was uh, 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 red. I think. See, you don't even remember. I don't remember. No. I mean, <laughs> I, I've you know I've just that that's a kind of things I'm trying Freudian to forget by Len Penichetti. Impression of bad memories, right? I mean. You don't want to remember. I think Fredonia was red, but I, Niagara was definitely white. So white grape juice that tastes like uh, Cadbury's, you know, the, the, the stuff that Cadbury's make white grape juice out of, that was definitely Niagara. Okay. Although there are other white Labrusca varieties. Anyway, those are the three that we had. And uh, by the way, Jordan wines, we're sitting in the original Jordan winery here, but 
in those days, the, the the sort of mothership of Jordan Wines was in right there in West St. Catharines beside Ridley College. Okay. And the right. buildings are still there, but nobody even realizes that was the old Jordan Winery. Wow. And we were literally in the shadow of that winery. That's where our vineyards were. And we sold those, those grapes to Jordan Wines. So um, what happened after that is I, I um, you know... I wasn't really necessarily interested. It was just, you know, you're a kid. You're, you, you do what you're told, right? <laughs> you, you go out and help and, and you get, get involved. You make the wine. You, you know, you, you drink the wine with, your, with the ginger ale. Because <laughs> there's nothing else in the house yeah. to drink. And, um, and then I, I ended up in, in high school. I, I had this, this astonishing experience. Uh, I had a geography prof- uh, teacher who, uh, I might even have his dissertation right over there in that bookshelf. Um, his name was Al Bodo, and he had a PhD, um, and that was something that the students at, at uh, Dennis Morris High School mocked because they thought, how, if he has a PhD, how, how, how does he end up teaching us, you know, yeah. in high yeah. school? Anyway, he was a, he was a, a great uh, teacher, an inspiring teacher, and he taught us. He had written this dissertation on growing Vitis vinifera in the Niagara Peninsula. Imagine, mm-hmm. yeah, in the 60s. And uh, so he he made his geography classes were all about explaining to the kids in the class why Niagara uh, is such a special place. Why um, you know in those days it was tender fruit and and uh, grapes, but the grapes were Labrusca grapes. And he uh, at the same time that he was teaching us about the climate and, and the, 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 the microclimate of, of the Niagara Peninsula. Uh, there was research going on here in Vineland, um, the, what we now call the site selection map, which has been reproduced o- over the decades and, and you know, changed slightly, but the, the fundamental research that went into, went into that was done in the late 60s, I think, when I was in high school. And so I s- sort of encountered that research as part of my geography Experience and this was in high school that you yeah. were learning about this, right? In the 60s. So the very map that I use today to explain to tourists or anybody interested about why Niagara is such a special place and why this is the only place, this is the largest plantation of Vitis vinifera in eastern North America, um, east of the Rockies. The reason that we can do that is because that, I use that same map, the same thing that I I encountered in high school, um, to this day to explain that that. Uh, idea. So anyway, I, I learned this stuff and then, and then um, uh, we were dealing with, we had the vineyard, I had you know, this experience of you know, pruning and looking after this farm. I mean, I was in school so I wasn't full time doing it, no. but I, I, I did it. Anyway, as an as a experience, because of that experience, I, I actually, and then, and then coupled with the, the knowledge I had learned in high school, I, I talked my dad into, I said, well, why don't we buy a place in a, a good site where we could grow the new varieties, which in those days were hybrids. And uh, vinifera was out there. Vinifera was like, you know, you were, you were, um, you know, rolling the dice. You were, you were being a, a complete revolutionary to consider vinifera. But certainly hybrids were kind of accepted in the industry as, as something that was, that was worth doing and possible. Anyway, long story short, we, he, he thought that was a great idea because he was about as crazy as, as I am and was. And, and so he said, yeah, let's do that. And so we started looking for, and I, I was focused on the bench because that, that was, it was, 
the maps in the old days said zone, I think it still does, zones A, B, C, D. A is the lake, yeah. lake shore. B and C are between the lake and, and the escarpment. D is the bench, basically. And um, so I wanted zone D. Zone D was what, what I knew was the best. Either it was zone A or zone D, but you know, the lake, we, we liked the escarpment more than the lake shore. And so we looked around and my dad found, found this site on Cave Spring Road. And he bought he bought a piece of land without even talking to me or anybody he, because it was it was so cheap as as he put it he was he always loved to deal <laughs> <laughs> and so he bought twelve acres which is the original uh, site of our oldest vines which are still in production today that's the CSV stuff correct yeah it's one of the sources of the CSV uh, we have two two sources the other is the Shoemaker Farm which we acquired many years later, but it was planted at the, actually earlier than ours. Ours, ours our Riesling and Chard were planted in 78. Uh, your, um, I, I listened to your interview with the boss, and it was the same year. They planted the Creek Road Farm in 78, and then we planted our, our site in 78, the same. So you pl- but you planted, you said Riesling and Chardonnay. Riesling and Chard, that was it. I mean, they planted 50, 60 acres. That, they, that was totally out there. Um, ours was 12, and we were just growers. We didn't have a winery. So so why go with Riesling and Chardonnay? You grew up in an Italian household. I don't imagine the wine Be, you were making at home was Riesling Jordan or Chardonnay. Because Jordan wines, we were growing for Jordan wines. And we, we had been selling the Brusca to Jordan wines, and, the, and their field man, who we were dealing with, um, advised us to, to grow. Um, to, they were willing to buy those grapes, so we just said, fine. And they, they supplied the vine, or they, they coordinated the vines and the vine, you know, the, the reasoning in those days uh, uh, were sourced through Herman Weiss, who's you know my my brother's father-in-law now. Um, but Her- that's how I met Herman, because he was supplying vines to Jordan Wines. So speaking of Chardonnay, I'm just going to break in really quickly. We the pop you heard right at the end, just to allow you to have a drink of something. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the one pop of my, you heard was yeah. the Blanc de Bon, one of my favorite wines. From uh, so that was that's a delicious little little bottle. And now that you're going to talk Chardonnay. Uh, I might as well make Andre happy by cracking open the... You'll tear up that ABC membership yet this year, Michael. Won't happen. Uh, the 2014 <laughs> Dolomite Chardonnay. So we're going we're gonna to kick into that. And, um, you know, these are all well... I, I think they're really well-priced wines to begin with. So uh, anyway, so you, you now plant um, Riesling and Chardonnay in 78, 12 yeah. acres. The, the, before that, we had planted two acres of, believe it or not, the Shonak. Which in those days was known as uh, nine five four nine. Seibel nine five four nine is the the number of the variety. It was it was it was uh, developed by the Mr. Seibel in France, <laughs> and, and that, he, the number was nine five. So growers in those days used to call them nine fives. Like you, there were there were a lot of them. There was it was a pretty prolific and uh, crappy wine, but you know <laughs> uh, it was it was way better than the stuff that than the Labrusca stuff, right? So we had two acres of that. First, and that was kind of like our tentative, like toe in the water um, attempt to grow something different. And for many years, we made our homemade wine from that that block of of uh, de Chonac. So that was in, in '74. We planted. I can see that. why you're using uh, ginger ale to make that taste. <laughs> well, no, the ginger ale was more for the Labrusca. But anyway, um, so '74 was was the uh, Chonac, and then '70 it was the was the vinifera. Um, and uh, we, then we just kept going with Vinifera after that. Um, so it was kind of tentative steps, but I was inspired by, in those days, because, I mean, you have to understand 
the climate of opinion in those days. We were greenhorns. We knew nothing about. We were in the concrete business, for God's sake. Yep. We knew nothing about viticulture, enology, any of this stuff. And all the experts were, were just sort of shaking the, like their head. Like it was it was out there to, to do what we did. Twelve acres of of uh, six acres each of Riesling and Chardonnay in 1978. I still remember in 79 or 80, the Vineland Research Station, the uh, extension um, horticulturist, because they didn't really have just a viticulturist. They, they did both. Um, what was his name, Bob? Uh, can't remember his last name, but anyway, he invited, they had these twilight seminars that they would sometimes hold, and they invited the whole industry out to come and have a look at this crazy vineyard that was, that was you know, uh, vinifera. It sounds like it was something that was held at night. To come up to it was. It yeah, was to the twilight. Yeah, yeah. Was in fun? the evening, because farmers, it was in the middle of the summer, farmers are, are, are busy all day, so they, they had these sessions, and they still do them, but in under, the, under the cover of darkness, yes. come on out and yeah, see the Yeah, so it was this whole thing, like, come and look at this, this, uh, innovative new vineyard of and, and the whole idea the, the whole story was you know here's the escarpment here's the bench this is the, the the site selection map everybody knew about it but nobody if you read that map the original one the copy like down the left or right hand side of that that um, uh, document it talks about what you could grow in these zones and um, it, it's only in zone D and zone A that they re they sort of tentatively recommend Vinifera. And the only vinifera they recommend, I think, are Riesling, Chardonnay, and Gamay. And that's it. Like, it was just like, well, if you really want to roll the dice, maybe you can try in zone A and zone D. But, but you know, just understand that that's, that's a very high-risk uh, adventure. So you took that risk. Yes. And so did. And I was inspired because, you know, Bosk had planted 50 acres or 60, whatever it was, on Creek Road. And... Um, Zerala, by the way, had also planted at the same time, or even earlier, the, what's now the Sager Farm, um, which is across the street from, from Inniskillen on Line 3, mm -hmm. at okay. Line 3 and the Parkway. The, the first block, because Albrecht lives on Concession 1 now, I think, but his dad's house was right on the Parkway. They bought that farm from Inniskillen. Uh, that's a long story, but... So, so that was planted, I think, in '74. So they had the same Riesling, Chardonnay, and Gamay. Those, those are all Niagara on the Lake. You're now you're, you're up yeah. here on, the, on yeah. the bench. Yeah, right. We were well. There were a few farms on the bench um, that had that had uh, vinifera, and it was like this cadre of revolutionaries that sort of you know skulked around at night and talked to each other, and, and didn't and were were not were, were fearful of you know um, dealing with all the conventional. Um, people that that were scorned us, you know, thought we were all nuts, and uh, well, you even referred to yourself as crazy while yeah. you were setting this up. So, you know, Bill Lenko, I got to know right away. Um, a guy named Paul Stefanik, whose farm is just down the road. It's right next door to the Q Vineyard, the Q Winery, yeah, Q Winery on the west side. That was ten acres. It was an immaculate uh, vineyard of Riesling and Chardonnay. He grew for Jordan. Lenko's grew for Chateau Gay, um, and then. On, on the other side of us, which is now part of our farm, Jack Shoemaker had an 11-acre vineyard of, of vinifera, mostly vinifera, um, which are, were planted in 74. We ended up buying that farm with vines that were planted in 70, even older than the ones we planted in 78. Wow. And that's the other source of our CSV, Re Riesling and Chart, today, those old vines. Now, it's not just Riesling and Chart in those no, vines? No, no. Well, it was, a, it was a grab bag. We, there were actually some Vidal up under the escarpment. We, we pulled those out. A little Syrah in there, too? 
No, there was Merlot, though. <laughs> Sorry about that. I was just, kidding, just kidding about the Syrah. There was Merlot. <laughs> Did you think Syrah was going to become... No, no. I mean, Syrah was really just like for Looney Tunes uh, back in the 70s. <laughs> Nobody would have dreamt of Syrah. I mean, I think our impulse was generally, you know, Northern Europe. You know, we were, we were Italians. Zeraldo, myself, um, Paul was from France or from, from uh, Algeria. I mean, most of the impulse was, okay, let's, we're in Canada, winter's a factor, let's be realistic. So we kind of oriented towards Northern Europe, hence Riesling, Chardonnay, Burgundy. Uh, Bordeaux was already um, out there. Like, which which makes, brings me to kind of a, another question. So what did you think of John Mary Nissen planting Bordeaux? Yeah, John was crazy. Like, that was nuts. <laughs> but he buried his vines. Okay. Okay. So that, and that was a, something that I, I, I decided early on that if that's what it took to grow grapes, grow vinifera in, in Niagara, I was out. Like I, that was where I would draw the line. And, you know, we learned that lesson early because in 1980, winter of 8081, we all went through the, what, what was called the Christmas Massacre. On Christmas Day of 1980, it was minus 25 or 26. And I, I had no idea that that was a, that, that, you know, I didn't lie awake at night thinking about the temperature in, in 1980. You do I, as I do today. <laughs> but, because um, that was my first experience. And we had this beautiful vineyard that had grown beautifully for three years. 78, 79, 80. 80 was our first crop. Magnificent crop. We had two tons an acre of each variety. It was just, it was, just, it was like, holy cow, this works, you know. We can do this. Okay. And then Christmas Day of that year, um, bang. Um, literally, that's when I learned how to di dissect buds. Helen Fisher, who, who um, was at the Vineland Research Station at the time, um, taught me how to, how to take a razor and slice open the bud and, and, and how to you know, uh, do it systematically and determine bud mortality. Well, the bud more, it was very simple when I went, when I actually did what she taught me to do. Zero. <laughs> we had, we had, everything was dead. Wow. And so we didn't know what to do, but we, that was my first experience. And we learned, in fact, they weren't dead. There were secondary and tertiary buds that ended up coming. Yeah. We, we pruned, we, we pruned very little. We saved the vines, um, but we had almost no crop. We had a tiny crop of Riesling that year in, in 81 and nothing. Uh, from Chard, but we saved the vines, and those are the vines that are still there today. Well, so do you, kind do you of, bury it all now, or no? No, no. And now the, the, the Cabernet probably would have been worse that year. That was probably the worst uh, winter injury we ever experienced. So you were growing Cabernet at that point, though? No, I was not. Okay. I didn't plant Cabernet till '89. And that's Franc, correct? Not so. Or did both. you plant both? Both. Okay. Yeah. And see, this is interesting to me because we're still we're still not even at the origin of, of Cave Spring. Right. So no. what were you doing with the fruit that you were getting from your Good vineyards question. in the seventies well, and early eighties? It was supposed to go to Jordan, um, which it mostly did. Uh, and I I have to um, you know tip my hat to to Jordan wines of of the day because they they were actually cutting edge. They 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 had a program to to really innovate and, and they were encouraging growers to grow vinifera. Uh, what they did with the wine was a different, or with the grapes was a different story because they were still, they still had the habit of, I was told that they would, you know, turn on the hose even with their vinifera 
because they were they were permitted to, right? So, yeah. So they, the the wine the resulting wine wasn't necessarily well, the water. But you're talking about drinking yeah. hose, you can yeah. stretch the the fruit stretch, with water. Yeah. yeah. What they call uh, euphemistically amelioration. Yeah. I, I hate that. Word. <laughs> but it's basically basically stretching the the grapes yeah. to get more per. Yes, more exactly. juice per ton. Yeah, that's the, and so, so you're, you're watering down your wine. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which is done. ICB wines are made that way to this day. It's permitted under the Wine Content Act. Anyway, um, Jordan, um, their field man Lloyd, uh, what was his last name? God, I should have prepared for this. Uh, <laughs> so Len, this, is, this is about, oh, this, is about this is about you. So. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. anyway, <laughs> I got a lot of help from from them and. Most of the grapes were sold to them, but then in, in the uh, early eighties, like th this is a, it's the worst business in the world, um, tr growing grapes uh, to sell as a commodity to winemakers. It's not like there's just no money in it, and we were and, and combined with the fact in those days, vinifera didn't command the prices that even some of the hybrids did because the grape growers marketing board, they were, it was dominated by hybrid growers and they all wanted. They, they 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 essentially bargained high hybrid prices in exchange for low vinifera prices because vinifera was insignificant. It was almost experimental, so no, they didn't care about the price, which meant that our price was the price we were getting was was unsustainable given the, the effort and expense of growing vinifera. Which means you had well, to start thinking about opening your own winery. No, I oh, found not even that. <laughs> I, I, or my dad, I, we we the, the price was much higher across the river in in New York State and, and elsewhere. My dad ended up finding a broker um, named Herb Barber in um, in upstate New York, and he, he he I think Herb passed away uh, a few years ago. But anyway, he we ended up through him selling our our fruit to um, a fellow named Doug Moorhead in in Northeast. Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. he, he paid FOB, our farm, in US dollars, and it was like, you know, I don't know, maybe 50% more than we would have got from, from Jordan Wines or any of the other wineries. Wow. So I, I just decided that's what we're going to do, and we did that, and it essentially saved the farm because, you know, we, we were, you know, we barely had two nickels. Wait, and what was he doing with the fruit? He had a winery. They still has a winery called Presque Isle Wine Cellars in Northeast Pennsylvania. So if he, we go and we raid his library, we might be able to find some pre-cave spring. Yeah, and he sold. He had, and then he he would then then sell juice off to other wineries. I know that my some of my my fruit ended up down in uh, uh, a fellow named uh, what's it called uh, down in southern Pennsylvania, uh, in in the Brandywine Valley. Um, God, I should have again. I can't remember his name, <laughs> but but yeah, he 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 bought Gamay. I know for sure. So I, I was selling uh, up until even after we opened the winery. I was still selling fruit because I had this relationship with a guy that I really liked and was had been good to me and really you know uh, in a, in essence saved my farm because it was just so financially. So, this, so it's, it's, is, it, is it your farm or is it your father's kind of stepping back? My, my dad point? died in eighty five. So, okay. like so that, that was just your farm. Pretty well. I mean, it was still a family enterprise, but yeah. I mean, I was, you know, there I was with this. In, in '85, we had just expanded. We just added another uh, nine acres to the original planting, and that's where we had Gamay and uh, more Chardonnay. Um, yeah. See, my my mind is still just blown on the fact that some of the first Canadian wines wouldn't have been made in Canada. Well, there's. I have another story about that because I want. I, 
it was at my dad's funeral, I think. Uh, my sister came up to me and said, I, this guy called, contacted me, gave me a call. She was living in Toronto at the time. And she gave me his name and she said, you know, he, uh, he wants to buy grapes from you. And, and I, I said, well, who is he? She said, well, I don't know, but he somehow found out about you from in the States. Well, it turns out he was a member of a winemaking, like home winemaking club. He lived on, on in Toronto on, um, you know, by between between Young Street and and, and Bayview, um, up by by uh, uh, what's the hospital up there? Um, anyway, you know the name. Northern General. No, oh. no, uh, on the one on Bayview. Um, Sunnybrook. Sunnybrook. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The, his the street runs right into Sunnybrook that he lived on. Anyway, he went. He went to. Uh, every no. every <laughs> every year he would go down to to uh, northeast and buy juice from Doug Moorhead at Prescott Wine Cellars because there was this club of home winemakers that had a relationship with Doug because he was one of the top sources in the east yeah. for for home winemakers to source vinifera and they're buying Ontario and he would grapes. drive all the way to drive right past us go to go to Go to Pennsylvania, get a demijohn or whatever, a Chardonnay, bring it home and make it. And then he found out that the Chardonnay actually came. So he drove past the vineyard on his way to Pennsylvania to pick up the juice. That's so, hilarious. So then he, he, and now the rest of the story. So he, he uh, you know, obviously decided to cut out the, the middleman and he started buying grapes directly from me. It's a Paul Harvey moment. Yeah. So uh, anyway, that, that's just another little... Weird. Uh, so the winery yeah, starts in in again. Eighty six. Nineteen eighty six. Yeah. So in eight, and you're not and you're number what on the depth chart, chart as as far as wineries who are opening up. Well, in those days, there there was already um, out here there was only Vineland, I think. Stony Ridge came about the same time, when, but they were up on the reason that they're they're called Stony Ridge is because they were on Ridge Road, okay. in Stony Creek. So and they've moved several times yeah. from that original location, uh, and then there were, in in Niagara on the Lake there was obviously Inniskillen and Shadow de Charm. Uh, Rife was already going. Um, Mary Nissen was not. John was just a grower. I, I forget when Mary Nissen started, but I think it was after us or around the same time. Um, Konzelman was before us, I think, by a year or two. Um, and oh, Hillebrand was there. Hillebrand was first Newark, and then Hillebrand. Yeah, Joe Joe so Horley started Newark, and so you're like seventh, something, something like that. Yeah. Okay, so but then the big boys were still around, right? Brights, yeah, Shadowgate. Well, I'm talking about the little guys who are now yeah. doing uh, yeah. Vera and, and and making Rieslings and Chardonnay. Yeah. So what's your very first wine? That you five hundred cases of Riesling, just called Riesling, and it was, it was I think, off dry. Um, and uh, we made a, a few demijohns of Chardonnay, and if, and I think we, we made some Gamay. I think we made a Gamay Nouveau, um, and it was all made at the Hillebrand Winery um, because we were looking. You know, I, I don't know what, what the rules are today, but in those days, to get a license, you had to have wine. You had to make wine, demonstrate that you could make commercially acceptable wine, have it um, approved by the LCBO, and then your license would be issued. So, and what they permitted was you, and, and this went wait, on. wait, 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 you had to make the wine before First. they would give you the license. Yeah. So you were, you sort of applied for a license. You, you, I, I think you kind of notified, I'm going to make wine. Uh, you do commercially. that commercially. commercially. 
you make it, you get it approved by the LCBO lab or something like that, I can't remember. And then they would issue the license on the basis of the fact that you have demonstrated your ability to make commercially acceptable wine. I think that's how it worked. But what they allowed was you, you, you didn't have to, in other words, you didn't have to invest in all the equipment and everything. Um, you, could, you could do it at somebody else's winery. Okay. I think you've officially blown Andre's mind because he sat there watching you with his mouth totally agape. Well, I mean, it's just, it's just the whole idea, the fact that you, like, it's, it's good that you're saying that you didn't need to do the investment, but I'm sure you could have some people who, like, I mean, it, it must have been terrifying to be prepared to put an investment in. Well, we still and, invested. We bought tanks. We bought five tanks. They're still sitting on the other side of that wall. Well, that's the thing is, is you spent money and the government could have still said no to you if something wasn't deemed commercially acceptable. Well, in the same way that, it, you know, you, you open a restaurant, uh, you have to jump through a bunch of hoops, you make up a lot of investment, then the inspector comes in and either gives you your license or doesn't, right? So it's okay, a fair enough. situation. Um, speaking of Riesling, I think. Oh, oh all right. So we'll open our next one. I think go ahead. you're a, you're a little bit behind, but I'm we behind, did yeah. we did do the uh, Dolomite Chardonnay. That was a nice creamy Chardonnay. I think it's but like a lot of mineral yeah. from start to finish. It's just yeah. Well, Dolomite. The whole point of, of Dolomite is is to kind of signal that these wines are grown on the escarpment. Right. It's Dolomitic limestone that we're celebrating in these wines, and um, you know we really think it does shine through, especially with uh, Riesling, which is what you have in your glass now, but also Chardonnay. Well, I, I just around. opened an 06 uh, Dolomite Riesling, which I think is the first year you made the Dolomite series. And it, oh, was, okay. it was outstanding. Yeah. Like a, we're talking about a nine-year-old Riesling, and I think at that point you were using the, uh, the, the old vines for that. I think you're now using younger vines for it. But if I'm not mistaken, that... Well, one of the, I mean, our, we have so much Riesling that the vines are, you know, even, even what we used to call younger vines are entering like 15 plus years so, so so you do call cave springs the the house that riesling built mm -hmm. so i think we taught we we counted on your list you have eight at least eight rieslings nine i think we ended okay up so we ended up at nine. we include the bubbles. ice wine and the bubbles and the late harvest yeah so riesling still is a major focus here at, at cave spring we we at some point i mean when we started in the in the 80s chardonnay was all the rage california chard was hot, you know, that, those big oaky monster Chardonnays that people uh, scorn today were, were that, that was the, the most fashionable uh, drink uh, or wine in, in, in the wine See, world. I hate that stuff. Alright, <laughs> so go on. So we made a lot of Chardonnay. In fact, we were, f we were, we were far bigger in Chardonnay than we were in Riesling uh, into the 90s. But this funny thing happened that, that our Riesling just kept growing and over a period of time through the 90s, we, we became identified as a Riesling producer. Our customers uh, saw us that way. And so at some point, the light went off and we just decided, you know what, we should not buck this trend. I mean, we, we, the, wine, the, the, the people are telling us they love this wine for a reason. It's great. And we clearly can make you know, outstanding Riesling on our sites. And, and, and so let's just embrace it. Let's go for it and, and do it and, and really focus on Riesling. And lead with Riesling, it, not only domestically, but it, most important internationally. Where, when, where we sell wine outside of Ontario, that's what we lead with because it, it also is easier, an easier sell. Because in when, when you go overseas or even in, across the river, you want to sell a Canadian wine. It's counterintuitive to, to have a Canadian wine at all. But at least if you say it's Riesling, well, it kind of makes sense. 
It's, it's interesting that you talked about the focus on, on Riesling because when we were putting the question of, of sort of where the future is going to Donald Zeraldo, he was talking about ice wine. Well, that's, that's Donald because, you know, he... he um, ice wine was his ticket, as it turned out. I mean, he, he went through many uh, phases at Inniskillen, um, and But the ultimate... Uh, home run for Inniskillen was was the uh, Grand Prix d'Honneur at at Vin Expo in '91 with the '89 ice wine, and they just they they did they ran with ice wine the way we've run with Riesling. I mean they they branded Inniskillen around ice wine and to this day. I mean I heard your interview with Jay uh, just last night, and he well, you asked him about export, and they're focused on Inniskillen ice wine, so it's still the case. Um, it was a constellation Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we okay. chose. We chose Riesling uh, as our signature varietal, as the, as the varietal that we wanted people to associate with our brand. And uh, that was a deliberate choice that occurred in the, I'd say, the late 90s or thereabouts. And, and then we planted more Riesling because it was clear that, you know, people thought our, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of winemakers in Niagara um, who come here to buy a bottle at the CSV because they're going home to Australia, New Zealand, Europe, and they want to bring back an iconic wine from Niagara, that's what they bring with them. And as that was sort of happening, we realized, you know what, we should embrace this. We should, we should really focus on, on these, these vineyards and this variety. Well, even when we spoke to Elizabeth Grant Douglas of, uh, formerly of La Crema, now she's gone, which is surprising, but yeah. um, she said that when she comes Home, good example. Yeah, you know. she comes and gets uh, Riesling. Riesling. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, she used to work here too. Both she and David, right? Well, there you go. <laughs> okay. Well, they were servers at On the Twenty when they were at Covey, um, and so and we, of course, David is Ken Douglas' son. Her husband is is Ken Douglas' son, and Ken, of course, was the founder of Thirteenth Street. Okay, uh, all it's right. A, it's a tiny little village. Um, <laughs> so, speaking of the village, what of the village do you like? You have more interests than just the winery within the within Jordan Village. Mm-hmm. So you have the Inn on the Twenty, mm-hmm. both the Inn and the restaurant. Mm-hmm. You have uh, the Jordan Hotel, Jordan, Jordan Hotel and the Jordan House for uh, the Tavern. The Tavern. And, and we have, yeah. What else is well, on the Penichetti label? In, uh, in addition to that, we we. Because this building is so big, we we uh, ended up in the property management business, trying to attract retailers that that had a kind of tourism um, focus, and and uh, that was a, a, an attempt to create a, a destination here on Main Street. So we're in the property management business as well. We have about a dozen tenants who lease space from us, and uh, that adds to the appeal of. Of tourists on the wine route coming to Georgia. So both yeah. sides of the road, correct? Or both just, sides of the yeah. road, yeah. And at the other end of the street. Okay. Yeah. So you basically own the town. No, we we, <laughs> own, we, own, we own both ends of the street. Is it, is it one of those? You know, yeah. there's a new sheriff in town. Um, I do. I do often when 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 uh, the, the the mayor of Lincoln shows up in Jordan, I always uh, caution them that that indeed they are. And today it's Sandy Easton. And, I tell Sandy when she comes to Jordan, that, and she's a personal friend I've known her for decades. I, I say that she's the mayor of Lincoln. That's true, but she's in Jordan now, and I'm the mayor of Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're we're gonna we're gonna I guess fast forward a little bit. So now you've got the winery, 
your Riesling is your is your brand. I'm looking at your 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 price list. Sorry, I just I blanked on what it was called. So I see a lot of Riesling. I see a fair bit of Chardonnay. I see Cabernet Franc as the uh, the dominant red. Mm -hmm. When did you make the the decision to go Cabernet Franc as the dominant red that you were going to deal with? I see a Cabernet Merlot and I see a Gamay, but I yeah. I see Cabernet Franc in in a number of of styles here. Yeah, yeah. Cabernet Franc is our go-to Bordeaux. Big red variety, uh, period. Oh, which means Andre wants to taste it. Yeah, I'm, I'm so, going to yeah, just grab the bottle. Uh, and that, you, you asked why, and the answer is that the wine is so damn good. Um, we planted, I, I planted some Cabernet back in, in, the, in 89. I, I got those vines from Paul Bosk. Um, but they, were, they, they weren't in the right site. We use it now for primarily for rosé because it's right up against the escarpment. There's too much shading there. They don't really... Sorry, what's it. the vintage on this? Which, which, which This is 2014. 2014. And it is outstanding. Cab Franc Estate. Yeah. So that is from a block that we planted in uh, 99. We call it Etherington uh, E4 uh, Cab Franc. And um, that clone... There's two clones there and, and they are the right clones. I can't remember the, the numbers. Anch... Uh, is is uh, it's outstanding. The guy that, yeah. It is. Yeah. So it was with that vineyard, which we planted in '99, uh, and we realized. I mean, as a grower, like I, I, what I found astonishing about about that vineyard was, it's so easy. It it it, it reminded me of my the early days with Riesling and especially Riesling, how it upright sort of posture. It's VSP, obviously training, but the vines were so low maintenance, and and there's so little intervention required to get killer killer wine and so we realized uh, because of that that uh, experience that this is and we had planted Cab so um, the year prior and Merlot and we, we were still on the fence about what Bordeaux variety was was the right one I, my money was on Merlot Ange was big on um, Pinot as, as, a, as a red variety uh, he ended up being more right than I was our Merlot is gone um, and and our our cab is on the way out. Cab sold is on the way out. But your Pinot is is uh, we don't yeah. we didn't bring along. That's why it. I say Ange was right. Um, so that brings me to so Ange we're talking about Angelo Pavon. Yeah. When did you bring Angelo Pavon in into the winemaking process? Well, I met him in kindergarten. Oh, okay. <laughs> so he had hair at that point. Right? <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah, okay. He had it right through most of university. <laughs> <laughs> And a beard. It was the seventies, you know, platform shoes. <laughs> so <laughs> I can anyway, see it. yeah. Yep. Um, Ange started in, when we started the winery eighty six. In fact, the 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 story with Ange was that um, we were both in in graduate school at the time. Um, uh, I was he was in a philosophy program, working on a PhD. I was in a uh, another program at York, uh, also working on a PhD, and. Uh, Wait, uh, Angelo has a PhD in philosophy. No, he doesn't. He okay. did, we both quit. Okay. To start the winery. No, they, we were full of philosophical with that. We're not going to make him miss in philosophy. <laughs> let's, let's go into the wine business. Well, Ange was actually planning to go to go to teachers' college at the time. At the at the moment that we were in '86, in the summer of '86, that fall he was going. That was his plan. And I talked him out of it. I said, you know, he, he, that that's a crazy idea. <laughs> so let's make wine. Yeah, I said, you know, but much because more he'd become, he'd become. I mean, we were personal friends for our entire lives, but 
um, he'd become uh, a wine zealot like like you guys. I mean, he, he, wine appreciation was his it had become central to his life while he was, you know, doing the usual graduate student thing, uh, trying to write a dissertation. Uh, when he wasn't doing that, he was drinking, drinking water. <laughs> well, tasting wine. <laughs> he'd, ta- he'd taken a course from Peter Gamble at, at uh, Brock on wine appreciation, and, and he was smitten. And, and in fact, I the, at that period leading up to starting the winery, I used to get frustrated because when we got together, I wanted to talk about philosophy, and all he wanted to talk about was wine. <laughs> and, and so I realized that that was something that, that he really loved. He grew up, same as me, an Italian family. He used to prune vines with his dad, made crappy Labrusco wine. So he actually believed in vino veritas. There was truth yeah, in wine. Yeah. Forget philosophy. There was more truth in so, wine. So we, so the original partnership for Cave Spring was myself and my brother John, um, uh, Tom Muckle of, of 30 Bench fame. Yeah. His daughter Fiona still works at the yeah, winery. she does. And um, um, two academics from Guelph, um, Cyril and Carol Deutschaver, who they were food science professors, or she was a graduate student, he was a professor. And so um, we were, that, that was the group. And we were about to start a winery. We bought some tanks and we put them at Hillebrand. Uh, we needed, but in, in, you know, they, that group, Tom and the two professors had made this killer reasoning that, that convinced me that they were, uh, that was a good crowd to hang out with and maybe st- if I was going to start a winery then they would be a good place to, they would be good partners. Problem was, Tom was the director of laboratories at Shadok McMaster Hospital, he was, a, he was a, a pathologist, an MD. And Cyril and Carol were up in Guelph, they were, te- like, they, were, they were academics. So we didn't have anybody to actually make the wine. You know, when we brought the grapes in, and, and so, Andrew Angelo, I said, don't go to Teachers College, we'll find a way to pay you to do this instead, what do you think? And he, he went for it. Nice. So he's got to be the longest running winemaker in Niagara. Still active. Still active. That's right. Because yeah. Paul Bosk Sr. would have, he's well, retired. Paul, Paul, but he's still, he's I still, don't know He's still I, in there, but I mean, he, uh, Angelo's active, he does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he, he's, he's, um. Now, you know, starting to step back as we have, uh, he has a protege now, Gabe DeMarco, who's, who's sort of stepping into his shoes on a gradual basis. So we're, we're already planning that transition. But yeah, you're right, he's still active for sure. I, mean, the, I just want to pause real quick. Like this 2014 Franck, like the concentration of flavors, it's outstanding, is, it's outstanding for the, the, yeah. the vintage. And it's just, I, I even pointed out in some of my videos when I've done. Uh, Cave Spring Cab Front. I'd like it's not the grape variety that you think of this winery for. You think of them for Riesling. Well, see, but uh, or Pinot. But you look at those two varietals, what they're doing with them. And although they make them in limited, I think there's two or three on the list. They are of such high quality. Well, and I know there's eight Rieslings on the list, but for me, I actually associate this winery with red varietals, the yeah. Gamay and the yeah. Franc. Really. You are one of the few. You but, are one but, of the few. But it's because my exposure to Cave Spring comes from mainly the LCBO. I don't live down here. Mm-hmm. I'm fortunate enough to live near, near Summerhill. And when I need, and to be perfectly honest, when I'm broke and I need a, a general list wine, the Cave Spring Red is always outstanding. Mm-hmm. The Gamay is always outstanding. And those are what I tell people to buy. Mm-hmm. I, was, I always think of it as Riesling and Sparkling. Spar- they're sparkling. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I said bubbles as soon as we walked in. Yeah. Well, we really, I mean, I think... I, 
I hope and expect that Cab Franc will become um, to our red portfolio as recently as to our white portfolio. You've been talking we, we to Brian very, Schmidt. We are very no. I I, I I I told you why because we have the, we we have our own experience and 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 oh you know Brian's got similar sights so it would, doesn't surprise me that he feels the same way. But we felt this way for more than a decade. Um, and we're acting on it. We planted more Cab Franc um, uh, recently. We got a vineyard that's four or five years old, and we got another one. We're, we're planting next. We can't get the vines this spring, but next spring we're planting uh, uh, another block of, of, of Cab Franc. We, we're, we have a Cab Franc program underway. So, in in twenty seventeen, how many acres does Cape Spring have? Right now, uh, it's about one hundred and sixty five uh, post to post. Um, in, in in and around K Spring Road, we've got a, we've got, um, well that includes a leased vineyard uh, down down on Green Lane Road. It's all in 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 uh, West Niagara, but most of it on on the bench, uh, with two exceptions, uh, a leased vineyard that's Bill Myers farm. We bought his. It's all Riesling, uh, killer, beautiful, but the most perfect vineyard in all of Niagara, I would say. And, all right. And then and then we have a small farm. Uh, um, down by the lake, just below the the, the Case Spring site. So in '86, how many cases of wine did you produce? '86, 500 Riesling. Okay, and then like a few demijohns of other stuff. Yeah, and now in 2017, how many cases does Case Spring make? Uh in well, in 2016, we were somewhere around 65,000 cases. So does that, that put you in the medium? Size winery in Niagara? Depending on your definition. I mean, by, by global standards. No, by global not, standards, we're, we're a drop in the bucket. Yeah. But in, in Niagara standards, does that lead, put you somewhere in the middle of the, of the pack? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because most of the wineries in Niagara are, well, in, depending on your definition, um, VQA, for example, has three categories of, of, of uh, wineries, small, medium, large. Small is... Uh, up to I think eleven thousand cases. They use liters, but it's about eleven thousand cases. Medium is from eleven thousand to about eighty thousand. So you fall into that. Yeah, I fall into that. And then and then large is above eighty thousand. Okay, so you were talking about planning more Cabernet Franc. So now I guess we should lead into where do you see the industry going? We are, as Andre said, in our I, I call it adolescence. I mean, people seem to know what we're doing now. And Michael, you've been talking about it for years. It seems like everyone's got a sparkling wine program going. People seem to be settling into Cabernet Franc, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay. There's kind of like there's a mighty five that people are focusing on. And the Gamay is starting to creep in there. Yep, too, Gamay, right Chardonnay, Riesling. Riesling. Yeah. So where do you where do you see the industry going? Well, I can certainly speak for ourselves. Where everybody else is going, uh, it's 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 harder to tell. But I know where we are. But number one. We're no longer running Vine Hospitals. We're done with that. Um, it's what, a, what do you mean by Vine Hospital? Well, I got I, I stole the expression from Martin Shula, because one day I asked him. Uh, he's a grower down by the lake. I don't know if you guys know him. He he sells to Vincor or Constellation, beautiful vineyard on the lake, um, and he had Merlot, and like we all as we all did. And and I said, hey Martin, uh, after the fourteen and fifteen winters. I think it was after 14, he, uh, we were having a conversation, I think it was out here on the street during the festival. He said, you know, I pulled out my Merlot, and, and, and I said, well, so, so how come? And he said, I got tired of running a vine hospital. <laughs> because, you know, they, you get a, 
in good years you get you get a good crop it's a big cropper but it's terrible for winter winter injury is is the nemesis of niagara and and uh, brelot is the poster child for uh, winter injury so you know we we've concluded and, and it was the it was the 14 um winter that just uh, um did it for me uh, and so we were, we, we just pulled them all out and we're, we're tight on reds now because we, we only, the reds we make, we grow ourselves. That's why you don't see that many reds there, yep. but that'll change. It's changing now. So, um, what I'm saying is, is the future should be on, on, uh, we should be applying the knowledge that we've acquired over the last 40 years. And, and for me, that knowledge is, is, um, uh, really six varieties that, that I can confidently say um, will ripen every year, good, bad, indifferent. We can ripen them to, to make commercially um, superior wine. And Bach and, was not on that list, right? I'm talking vinifera. There we go. Okay, so what are the six? six are? Six are. Yeah. The six are, are, there's three reds and three whites, funnily enough. Yeah. Riesling, Chardonnay, and Gris, Pinot Gris. Um, because... Um, it, it it's it's the least um, from a viticultural point of view probably the least of the three in terms of um, you know challenges but it still at least can get through a winter and you can make serious wine from it and now you can also make plonk I mean depending on the style but but it, it's a serious grape variety in Alsace for example or in other places so um, those are the three whites okay so Sauvignon Blanc I see on your list is it on its way out. We're pulling out our last Sauvignon Blanc uh, in a matter of weeks. Okay, so there. And this for the same reason. Um, that's a good example. That block. I mean, I look at it, and I, I have this argument with Angel all the time. But I look at the block, and you look down the rows, and you think, and you see trunks that are you know two or three inches thick diameter, and you think, well, what's wrong with Sauvignon Blanc? But if you go into the vineyard, about fifty percent of the vines are dead. Mm. You don't. They're they're either dead or they're being renewed. And and that's what I mean by a vine hospital. Yeah. Uh, have a look at a vineyard, and if you don't see big old trunks, you see spindly new renewals coming up all the time. That's not a healthy vineyard. Sure. I mean, it's one thing to renew them on a systematic basis, as you worry about old trunks. That that gets done, but that's not done systematically across the whole farm. When you see a whole farm like that, that tells you that vineyard was damaged by by a bad winter and the whole thing has to be renewed. That means there's no crop for a year at least. Uh, the c cost is enormous and, and so we've realized that it's, it's silly. I mean we've been running experiments for decades and when, when we're done running experiments. Uh, we've got six varieties that, that, that we can rely on. Okay, and the reds are? The reds are uh, Gamay. Uh, I love Gamay. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, I call it the ugly duckling grape of, 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 the, of the wine world, really. I mean, people, people scorn it, but we make killer gamay. Well, I think as, as, as a broke-ass millennial, uh, I have such mixed feelings about pumping up gamay. I mean, mm -hmm. as a writer, I need to call a spade a spade. And like I said, I, I tell people to buy the gamay from Cave Spring, Malivore around here. I mean, it's just 13th yeah. Street. But for me, like having traveled to Beaujolais, it's also some of the only 
perfectly ageable wine that people have no idea has this capability to sit in a cellar for 10, 20 years it's, that I can afford. And if I tell people to buy it and it takes off, like I just Cru, came... Cru Beaujolais. Yeah. Yes. And I, I just came back from, from, uh, from New York and every wine shop I went to had an unbelievable selection of Beaujolais. So you I'm worried what's going to happen so to well. the cost for that. Why? Acid. Yes. Yeah, the acidity. Massive acidity. But it just holds on to the, the fresh fruit flavors too. Full like, malolactic. Every year you have to because the acid will tear your palate off more than any Riesling, um, if, if you can imagine. So it, the, the longevity of Gamay is really about that, which is, anyway, we, in our, our style is not like Cru Beaujolais. I mean, that's, that's um, volcanic soil and mm. very different, head pruned, and, you know, very different. But That being said, your, your gam, the Gamay that comes from Cape Spring is generally a little more robust than... 13th Street or Malabar that's around here. Like it, it's, it's pushing the line almost to full body. So then I can almost guess, by the way, the other two uh, red varieties, which are going to be P- Pinot and, and, and Cabernet Pino. Franc. Yeah, Pinot. Pinot is the biggest challenge viticulturally. Um, and and, and we, we learned in 15, even winter, like we were shocked um, that, that we had a, a, a new block of Pinot that it was just in a little bit of a low spot. Uh, we're on the bench, so all of our sites are... are pretty much um you know ideal for for a fighting winter injury for 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 uh air drainage and so on but just the slightest little contour change and, and we had pinot in that spot and i was shocked so so pinot ha- has its challenges and of course thin-skinned and you know trying to ripen it like a year like this past year 16 pinot was brutal you know because it it uh uh, it always it, when when you have a, a warm year, and they ripen early around the end of the summer and like around Labor Day, when we still have those those really muggy uh, evenings, nights, and 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 uh, they get up to around eighteen twenty bricks, they they start to fall apart. I mean, if you don't have cooler, um, you know, nights. You, they fall apart and it's a challenge so the best pinot years are the years when when they sail through that early september period and they don't ripen until um late september early october but you can't always count on that anyway pinot is a big challenge but it still makes we, we're making great pinot here in niagara and including our own uh but it's a it's an expensive wine to grow and so you know we're we're not we're not mass producing it because we want it, we, we need to get the price and, and so we're, we're focused on you know, trying to get the, the highest quality we can get. Well, I guess the last question I have is going to be is going to be this. There's also a, a big pl- proliferation of sparkling wine. You have three on, on your lists. Yeah. Um, you were an early adopter of, of sparkling wine, if I'm not mistaken. Not early enough. Um, partly because we, you know, it's an expensive product to make. The, the, the margins are not that great, even at $30 a bottle, because it's so expensive to make. Um, so we avoided it for a long time, uh, for that reason. Uh, but the, the, but then we we dove in and and uh, we've settled on Chard as our yep. as our primary, as really the only variety we we're making some Riesling uh, sparkling now too. But Chardonnay is really our focus, and uh, yeah, it's it, we have the natural conditions. I mean, we have great mineral uh, soils and and you know uh, limestone is is a, is a great. A place to to grow sparkling wine, and uh, you know you you pick them under ripe. So from a viticultural point of view, that's that's a no brainer. I mean, it's easy to do. 
we have plenty of Chardonnay, um, and so it all makes sense. And uh, and then again, it's, it comes down to the at the end of the day, it's not about just the vineyard. It's also about what's the wine like. It, you know, when you when you make a great wine and you realize you can do it consistently, of course you're going to keep doing it. And and that's that's I think the industry is is, is coming around to realizing that. Um, and I'm talking about about uh, you know classic method sparkling wine, of course. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I think there's a bright future for it, uh, but it's always going to be a challenge. I think over time, uh, I think consumers will begin to realize that uh, you know you can get ch champagne quality for half the price um, in a in a bottle fermented Niagara uh, sparkling wine, and when and and when we convince the people who insist on buying paying sixty bucks a bottle for a for a champagne entry level, then then they're 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 going to realize why am I doing that if I can get the same quality for half the price? Well, I'll drink to that. That's what I've been saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Len. I, we really appreciate this. No problem. I, I enjoyed it. Um, there's, there's lots more to the story, but uh, I'm, glad you, <laughs> I'm glad you gave me a chance to tell part of it. Anyway, that's great. Oh, thank you very much for sharing it with us. I think that was fascinating. I really think Len is a fascinating guy. I'm I'm starting to think we should do a part two of this. I definitely think we need to do a part two with that because I feel like we barely scratched the surface. But uh, for me, it was just really interesting to hear about the origins of uh, salvaging vineyards that were planted with uh, Labresca. And uh, also both of yours, yours and Len's reaction when I said that I'm curious what those wines tasted like. I don't think you really are, Andre. You really don't want to know. <laughs> but you know who we should also get, speaking of Cave Spring, is Angelo Pavan. So Angelo is on notice. He is on the roster. I'm really looking forward to uh, to talking to him. And uh, we can actually tease our next uh, legacy interview. We had a chance to sit with uh, Dr. Alan Jackson. So you can look forward to that and you'll see that in the next few weeks. And that one's pretty exciting too because most people should at least know who Dr. Alan Jackson is because you say his name every time you say, oh, I'm going to get myself a bottle of Jackson Drake. Well, and... Without giving too much away, I was just fascinated to hear the company that he helped build uh, had so much influence over the landscape of what Ontario wine looks like right now. I think if it weren't for him, things would be looking very different. I do too. I do too. So people have got to listen to that. I think we're, what, about five, six weeks away from that. And if people haven't realized, we are now weekly. Hooray. So make sure you subscribe at iTunes, and uh, you can always find us on SoundCloud, Two Guys Talking Wine. And I'm Michael Pincus from MichaelPincusWineReview.com. I'm Andre Peru from AndreWineReview.ca. And good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. <laughs>